1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'll read verses 23 through 26. This is the word of God. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This has been a very unorganized series of sermon that I've been preaching through the Lord's Supper. But I have done it with the heart and with the intention that too many of us grow up in the church or find ourselves in the church and have no idea what we come to this, the table for. When we do, oftentimes it's sort of the, the immediate purpose of just memorializing, which is important. That's a central aspect of the supper. Sometimes it has to do with uh, covenantal rites or various things that we experience with the words that Christ says. And that's absolutely true as well when we come and we recognize the blood of the new covenant, his body that was broken. Uh, these are important things. We've considered sin. When we come to the table, we should be reminded of our own sin, both in the sense that Christ has paid for our sin debt and the sense that we are being sanctified by his ongoing work, the work of the Spirit. And this institution is to remind us that sin matters. It costs. It costs the life of our Savior. It costs the torture of his soul there on the cross. It costs something that we'll never quite understand, the mysterious separation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we'll never understand that, I don't think. We'll never quite grasp how that relationship with the Father and the Son and our mediator, which is Christ, uh, sin broke that relationship down to a degree that, that our sin deserved. But he bore that in his own body on the cross. So we've gone through several different ways of looking at this. Recently, recently we've considered that this is worship when we come to the Lord's table. It's God's way of the, the people of God approaching him in spirit and in truth. We want to know how to worship God in a way that pleases God. Otherwise, we're no better in our worship than the rest of this world that worships blindly idols, other things besides the creator of God. So how does God want us to worship? This is one of the central ways that we are taught to come into God's presence and worship him. But I began this series by speaking about something which may have been foreign to us, but I think is very important, and that is the table fellowship that we have with God. Now, table fellowship, when we speak about that, uh, we may lose what that means a little bit in our culture. But when you sat down at a meal together with somebody, across table with somebody, you are sharing in an intimate fellowship with them. This is why Jesus was reviled, by the way, when he was on the earth. He was eating with prostitutes, sinners, tax collectors. How could he do that and be righteous? Well, he did that by calling them to himself, to believe on his name, to repent and believe. The kingdom is among you, he would call them, to believe. And we saw there many months ago that... Oftentimes in the Old Testament, this table fellowship 
is come, comes after a covenant is made between two opposing parties or two parties that had reason to suspect each other. And when we see our own sinfulness in Scripture, when we see what God did for us in giving his Son to bring a new and better covenant to pass, to make enemies, us who were enemies of God, his friends, to bring us close to himself, he does that through this means set before us. Christ's crucifixion, his body broken, his blood shed, to bring us to table fellowship with God. But I said there just briefly that that table fellowship doesn't terminate in this memorial. This is a memorial, and this memorial speaks to something yet still future, as we'll see today. Today, we'll briefly touch, and I say briefly, touch on the future aspect of our salvation. And one particular aspect of it, which is the future table fellowship we have with God forever through Christ. This table, this supper, what we will partake of this morning prepares us for eternity. And I hope that you have that in mind when you come to the table this morning. Right now, we are in the presence of God through his mediating grace. What do I mean by mediating grace? Christ is our mediator. He is between, he comes between us and God. He is our means of coming to God. But he is our mediator, and there is a sense where he is our intercessor, but he's at the right hand of God interceding for us. And yet he gives us the Holy Spirit, which in a sense is still a mediation. There is a sense where our faith one day, which is also a mediate grace, we are mediating, faith is not sight, it's not enjoying the physical presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, but it is still spiritual, true, intimate relationship with God. But there is a time when that faith will give way to sight. When our hope, which is not yet realized in this sense, will be fully realized because we will be in the presence of our Lord. And so mediation will give way to immediate fellowship. Immediate fellowship, which is real and true, will give way to immediate fellowship. And I'll illustrate what I mean by that. Jesus says in John 14, 1 through 3, now he's preparing his disciples, he's about to leave them, which must have astonished them. They are thinking, here is the Messiah. He's here to stay, he's here to set up his kingdom. But he's not here to stay in that immediate sense. He's going to give the Holy Spirit, which he says in John 14 later. But he begins this chapter, we give it the chapter, chapter 14, by saying this, Let not your hearts be troubled. And you and I need to hear that today. Because I'm sure we long, if we are believers, we long for Christ. As sin increases around us, if we see our society giving itself over more and more to sinfulness, we should long more and more for the presence of Christ. It's natural that we do. It's right that we do. And this was the world that the disciples lived in. But Jesus tells them, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Isn't that remarkable, that parallelism there? 
You believe in God. This is how sure these words are. Believe me. Nobody says that but God in the flesh, by the way. Believe me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, here's this promise that we are to believe as it is the word of God. I will come again to you and will take you to myself that where I am, you will be also. One of the things when we looked at these elements, the body and blood represented in the the bread and the wine here this morning, is that we said, we don't believe that these turn into the body and blood of the Lord. These represent him to us, and he is in us and dwells with us when we partake by faith because we have the Spirit. That's mediated presence. But Jesus is talking about here, one day he will come back and he will take his people to be with him where he is in his immediate presence. We will be with the Lord forever at that time. And this is what our faith looks for, that blessed hope, it's called, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Titus 2.13 says, When Christ returns, our hope will be realized, our faith made sight, for we will be in his presence forever. And we will be free from sin. All the memorial aspects of this supper will be forever useless. One preacher described it like this. Is, say, for instance, your wife and children are away or you're away from them. And they're looking at your picture. And this is how I imagine things if I ever leave. You know, that they're every night. Where's dad? Where's my husband? I just, I want him to come back so badly. And then he comes back, or she and they come back, whatever it is. You don't just keep looking at the picture, right? This is the person you were longing for now. And so what we're talking about, when we think about the hope and the faith that are exercised in the partaking of this, is that it looks forward to something that this provides. And I haven't even gotten to what it is in the text yet that we're looking at. How can we illustrate that? I want to turn to 1 Corinthians 13. This is the famous love chapter. But Paul gives a really good description how good, essential good. We, what is essential for Christian? Faith is essential. Without faith, you cannot please God. Apart from faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will not be justified. You will not be counted as righteous on the day of judgment, even now. Faith is essential for believers, but faith is going to give way. It's not going to be forever. Look, look at what he says here, 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 10. Love never ends. That's key for what the apostle says. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. And when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Hello. We need to hear that, men. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, 
even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. I'm not going to exegete all of what Paul is speaking about, but I believe that his main objective is to teach about the eternal and therefore better virtue, the quality of love in comparison with other essential and good and gracious gifts of God to Christians now. These Christian gifts like prophecy, the gift of tongues, knowledge, they're going to pass away. Love never ends, he says. Even faith. I said essential. Faith is essential. For even us to love God now, faith is essential. Hope is essential for the Christian. And yet they're partial in a sense. Faith and hope are essential, but they're partial for the Christian because they are meant to mature us into a place where they will no longer be needed. When we are with God, when we are with Christ, we will not need faith. That hope will be realized. Faith will be made sight. We will be with him forever, and they will pass away, the apostle says, And one thing will remain of those virtues, love. So you see that there is a future, there's a need for these things now, there's a need for this supper now, but it's going to give way to something greater for us. And that's really the principle that I want us to understand the perfect refers to Christ at his second coming. And when that happens, All these graces, all this goodness of us worshiping together, I love worshiping with the church. And that's going to just dissolve into something greater. No more sin to confess. No more offending our neighbors. No more offending God. No more sanctification process. We will know even as we are known, we will be like him for we see him as he is. And yet I want to tell you that when we come to this table, that should be in our mind. Because that's part of the promise of the future. The apostle says here, 1 Corinthians 11, 26, finally I get into somewhat of our text, right? All that was just introduction, but the rest is not much longer than the introduction. 1 Corinthians 11, 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, what does it say? You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Two two main points this morning, and they won't take long. First, Christ's death and resurrection is implied at the table. His death and resurrection are implied at the table. Oftentimes I've thought, why give us a memorial that just memorializes remembers his death. I mean, I, the cross is central to history. It's, a, it's the epoch of God's plan. So there's that truth. But we know that the cross, apart from the resurrection, Paul says it's in vain. But, but here's something for us to understand. God gives this memorial to us, this ordinance, this sacrament to us because Christ rose. You see, there's no sense in memorializing Christ's death if he didn't rise. 
There is no hope for us in the broken body and the blood shed if he didn't rise. And that comes home to us in these words, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's implied in the whole event that we are looking at that Jesus rose. And what does that mean? That means his death accomplished its purpose. His death accomplished its purpose. But the first thing I want us to consider is this term, you proclaim. This means that we partake of the Lord's table. When we do this morning, we demonstrate that what Christ said about himself in regards to this supper is true. What did he say? He said, this is my body, which is for you. This is the the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many. When we come to the table, we are to those words saying, amen. Yes, Lord, this is for me. Do you believe Christ died for you? The Son of God, the only Son of God, loved you and gave himself for you. You come to this table, this is you saying amen to his proclamation that he was doing it for sinners. That's you saying amen to his promise that he's doing this for you. This is faith's correspondence to Christ in his words, but not just his words, the fulfillment of his words. He didn't just say he'd do it, he did it. He bore on in his own body the curse that was rightfully ours when he went to the cross, the tree. And when we come to the table this morning, you see, this is the purpose for these sermons. I want you to come with the faith that God, knowing what God has revealed to us when we come. So that this is not just an exercise, we do this once a month at the church, and I'm going to go take the bread and drink. So you have these truths in mind. You come this morning to these elements and you say, Amen, Lord. You did this for me. You did this for your church. You did this for us. You took our sins upon you to save us, and you accomplished that. Second, faith in Christ at the table includes faith in the risen Christ. We don't come to this table in any sense believing that Christ remained dead. That that is not a faith that comports with what we're doing here. Because we're taught that if Christ is dead, We are still in our sins. There is no point in memorializing a sacrifice that didn't accomplish our salvation. Christ's purpose in dying was to save us, to save sinners. And this says, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This implies in the whole event that he lives. This means that Jesus' death is not the end of hope but the beginning of it. You know, I believe very much that when we come to this table, we need to come solemnly. You know what that word means? We never use that word in our society. That we don't come frivolously, whimsically, loosely, casually. You know, okay, give me the thing and give me that too. And now I'm good. And we go and we sit down. We are coming before a holy God who gave his son 
We come reverently. If you don't, don't partake. Please, don't partake. We come reverently, but we don't come without hope. We don't come without joy. You see, those things can be held together. They have to be held together in a world of sin with God's promises and his provisions of salvation. We tremble before God, who is a consuming fire with joy. Psalm chapter 2. We tremble with joy because our salvation is not just made possible. It has been provided for us by a holy God who gave his son for us. All the reasons we might despair, our own sin, the sin of the world, all of the sin that Christ bore on his body, our own sin. We might come to the table brokenhearted, and I don't discourage that. But that should give way to hope when we partake. That should give way to joy. That should give way to love for God and for Christ. Why? Because Christ arose. His death accomplished for us the forgiveness of sin. Do you know the joy of forgiveness of sin? <laughs> I get emotional every time I think of that. We don't, if you're okay with sin, you don't know Christ. But if you know Christ, you're not okay with your sin. But you know that if you know Christ, you know he's taken that sin from you. And the joy... The, the burden that falls off your back like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress. And, the, and he cries out. As Paul does in Romans, or 1 Corinthians 15, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what the, the scriptures say about Jesus' crucifixion and the impossibility of him remaining dead as a result of it. Acts 2, 23 and 24, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So just as he died not for his sin but for ours, so too he arose that those who believe on him will live with him. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the fact that Christ died and accomplished in his death what God sent him to do, namely our salvation, is known by the impossibility that we, we would be, he would be held by death forever. So God raised him up. It means that when we come to this table and we remember his death, we should do so with confidence, with hope that we are forgiven and we have a future with God. Some traditions of Christianity called this the Eucharist in front of us. It can be a confusing name to give to the table as Protestants. And yet the term Eucharist is a very good term. Eucharisteo it comes from, give thanks. When we come to this table, it should be with hearts of thanks towards God. 
He's given his son. His son has died, yes, but he's alive. And his, his death is the means of our salvation. The second main point is this. Christ's return, Christ's return is the end of this supper and the beginning of the immediate table fellowship. So, he died, he lives. This is implied in what Paul says. But also, what we are doing here seems to be symbolic of what we will do for eternity. Namely, we will have fellowship with God at his table. You say, well, how do we get there? First, Romans 8, 19-25 says this, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly await for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And so here's this first point. There will be no remaining sinfulness or effects of sin at all in God's creation when Christ returns. And this is important as we consider until he comes. This means that, as I said earlier, our sin will have nothing to do with a meal that we look forward to. And I say we have a meal to look forward to with God. And our sin has nothing to do with it. There's no more guilt. There's no more shame. There's no more confessing sin. There's no more time of examination. We're going to examine ourselves. If you are living in perpetual and continued unrepentant sin, I'll ask you not to come this morning. Then there will be no question of ongoing sin. The creation, our own selves, will be made new absolutely. The final redemption of our body, all things will be made new. There will be no hint of sin at all in God's creation, his new creation. And so that will be gone. That's something we have looked forward to. Second, we will live in the immediate presence of our Savior. As I said earlier, he says that where I am, you will be also. John 14, verse 3, and many other places. The intimacy of this promise is seen in what Jesus says at the Last Supper. And here's really the main point of this whole sermon coming. Matthew 26, 29 says this, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now, Jesus is preparing his disciples for his crucifixion. He's establishing this supper for the church until he returns. We are to observe it until he returns. But in this statement, until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom, is a statement of a future, intimate, table fellowship with our Lord. Now, some commentators, some scholars say, this is just symbolic language. This is not speaking of a literal sit-down fellowship, eating and drinking after all, some say, why do we need to eat when we have resurrected bodies? And to that I say, theologically, that's not a good answer. Adam was eating. He didn't have sin. He ate before he had sin. And as we'll see right here, 
Very interestingly, after Jesus is risen from the dead, there's three times in the New Testament that tell us that he ate and drank. Luke 24, 41 says, And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? I don't, now, I don't know if he's hungry. I don't know. But God made good food. Let's just all agree to that. And even as sinners, we know that's true. How much better? You know, some people, are there going to be hamburgers in heaven? Whatever there's going to be, I don't know. I'm not going to get into those questions. Whatever there will be, can you imagine how good it will be without the slightest hint that it's what we need to satisfy us for our lives? It's just going to be good reflecting back to the glory of God. And Jesus says here, have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish. And he took it and ate it before them. To me, it's like, why is that there? Why is that there? Well, it tells us he has a real body, a true body, which many were denying in those days. He has a true body. It's renewed. But he ate this fish. John 21, 13, Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. And it's implied there that Jesus ate breakfast with his disciples. Acts 10, 40 and 41, But God raised him on the third day and made him appear not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. This is the witness of the apostles. Now, very interesting, it never says that they drank the fruit of the vine with him. So this is not in contradiction with what Jesus says in the Last Supper. He says, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until that day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So whatever you see about the future kingdom, this is no contradiction there. But this is not all the scriptures have to say about Christ eating and the resurrected people of God eating. There's an Old Testament promise found in Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 8. On this mountain, now the mountain was often, this mountain was often descriptive of where God dwelt. So this is intimate. This is where God is dwelling. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all the peoples. In other words, there will be no more sin. The veil that is spread over all the nations, the gospel will succeed. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away all tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Now, interestingly, in there, where that feast is presented, their God is the one who is presenting the feast. And so the question, well, is God there fellowshipping with us at table fellowship? But when we go to Revelation chapter 21 and we see where the author, John, is given this vision and he recites this text, all tears will be wiped from their eyes. He says, he adds to this, behold, the dwelling place of God, that mountain of God, is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And so this is not just God bestowing a meal for his people. He is present there as they partake 
of this meal is the picture that we get from Scripture. Matthew 8, 11, Jesus warned the unbelieving Jews, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God in Luke's gospel. Does that excite you at all? Am I the only one that wants to sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and have a meal together? Samson? I'm interested to see, because we have Brother Barber here. He's a professor in Old Testament, and he says Samson was a, a shining example of godliness in the Old Testament. And, and growing up, Samson was not that in Sunday school class. And so I'm kind of, wait, how do you see that, sir? You know, and we're going back and forth. But, but don't you want to sit down with the saints? Well, you will, I think, according to this. We're going to have fellowship, but not just with them. One of the great promises we see in the book of Revelation is that there will be a, a marriage supper. There will be a marriage supper. And, and there's no questions about who's going to be present. The church is the bride. And the bridegroom is Christ. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these, true, these words are true and faithful. So I'm going to just say this to you. When we come to this table this morning, I believe there are, is enough in Scripture for us to understand that this table fellowship that we partake of is preparing us for a future fellowship with Christ. A fellowship that will never end. A fellowship that will have nothing ever come between us. There will be no sorrow. There will be no tears. There will be no sin. There will be no memorial. There will be no unleavened bread and grape juice or wine or whatever. It will all be made perfect in that day. Why? Because he came to earth. He took on our nature, human nature. He was made in the likeness of men. He was tempted at all points yet we, as we are yet without sin. And he set his face as a flint to obey his Father in heaven and go to the cross to die for the sins of his people. All who would believe on his name. He did it. His death accomplished the purpose for which he came. He died righteously and he died as a substitute and death could not hold him. And he was taken up to the right hand of the Father where he is our mediator, preparing as our mediator a place for all who call upon his name. And he promises by the same promise that he promised to die for us that he is going to come again and receive us unto himself so that where he is we will be also and we will forever be with the Lord and we will fellowship with him and I hope you have that gracious God that loving God's saving purposes in your mind when you remember that he died on the cross to make this all true for you who don't deserve it. None of us deserve it. It's all by grace, to the glory of his name.